Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's great to hear about the work of the Keiths. And, uh, you know, as we think about the needs of the world all around us, uh, it's so important that we partner with works like the Keiths and, and, um, and ministries all over the world as they minister to those in need. And uh, so thank you, Keiths, for doing what you do. And the missions committee is going to be meeting with them a little bit later today for lunch. And I know we're looking forward to getting to know them uh, better. So uh, if you would turn in your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Uh, Pastor Conover left to see his dad in Florida and spent some time with him. His dad has been having some health challenges, and so he is there helping his mom uh, take care of his dad. So we can all be lifting up uh, Pastor Conover's family as uh, they're... Uh, just taking care of each other during this time. We want to make sure we lift them up in prayer. And uh, we want to welcome those of you who are listening in online. And we wanted to remind you, as well as all of us here, um, well, these have been difficult days to stay connected, but one of the ways that we can stay connected is the online communication card. And so uh, if you could just go to our church's homepage, fill that out for us, let us know if there's any prayer requests you have. And even if you're here with us, since we don't have a bulletin and that information in there, you as well can grab your phone and just tap into that, even as you sit there in your seat, and just let us know that you're here. And we want to know your prayer requests, what's going on in your life, just so we can be praying for you. So please do that. And uh, we're here on the Lord's Day. This is the day that we set aside to draw our attention together as believers uh, to him and to focus on him and place our, our affections and our focus on him on this day. And so our prayer is that we would just continue worshiping, not just in singing, but as we turn together into God's word and uh, continue to worship him in the word this morning. So um, there's a story from the, the pages of church history that were told about a man that had a very dedicated and devoted Christian mother. And on the other side, he had a very pagan father. And given those two examples in his life, he chose to follow the example of his father. And he committed himself to immorality in his life. And uh, we're told that his mother, though, continued to pray for him. And uh, one day, this young man was pacing back and forth in a garden, and in this garden was a copy of the New Testament that was attached to a podium. And in the background, there were children that were playing, and as part of their games, there was a song, and the words to this song said, take up and read, take up and read. And so this young man, by the name of Augustine, grabbed the New Testament, and his eyes fell on the book of Romans. And as he read the words, he was given understanding and he was converted. And the Lord saved him and he became one of the great theologians of, of the church. And then there was a few hundred years later in the 16th century, a young monk who was also a professor was preparing some lectures for his students on the book of Romans. And he just happened to run across the notation by Augustine. And it explained from the book of Romans how God made a righteousness available 
through faith. And from that moment, Martin Luther first understood the gospel. And he said this, When I understood the text, the gates of paradise opened, and I walked through. And of course, we know that the Reformation was born over 500 years ago. And so this morning, as we, as we turn our hearts and minds to this passage of Scripture, as we look at the book of Romans, um, knowing that through time, God blesses those that devote themselves to a study of this book. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1, God's word says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then jumping to verse 15, Paul says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we praise you for uh, this gathering this morning. We praise you for the word, your word, which is infallible without error, every word right and true. We know and we can testify that your word is inspired and it's profitable for us for doctrine and correction and instruction in righteousness. And now, Lord, as we, as we worship you, we ask that this would not just be a religious experience for us. Lord, this morning we want to be worshipers of you, the only true God. Lord, we pray that this would not just be an academic experience, but may it be for us our food. May it be our, our life our relationship with you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would convict us, show us your truth, grow us as your disciples. Lord, may we see your warnings in this passage. May we see your wisdom in this passage. May we see your gospel in all of its glory. And Lord, we think of those this morning who might be lost in their sins, who do not understand the gospel, the good news. We pray that you would bring them understanding this morning. Lord, we request of you that they would overcome their pride to run away from their sins and run towards you their only hope, the Savior of this world. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Well, as we think about uh, this passage from this book of the Bible, I'd like to start this morning with a quotation from Nabil Karishi. Nabil was a man on the speaking team for Ravi Zacharias Ministries, and until his death from cancer just a few years ago, he was a Christian apologist, and the Lord saved him in the most remarkable way, and in a recent documentary called American Gospel, Nabil says this, I was raised as a devout Muslim in the United States, and the fact of the matter was that every time I connected with a Christian, I realized they didn't know why they believed what they believed. The Christians who were around me wouldn't share the gospel with me, and I never realized why. I concluded either they didn't believe the gospel was true, or if they did believe it, they didn't care if I went to hell. Well, it's, as we hear statements like that, we might grow distressed and might wonder, why is it that we as Christians sometimes don't know why we believe what we believe? And maybe you've even felt that personally. Why don't I know sometimes why I believe why I believe? And you might feel that, but one thing I think we do know is not knowing why we believe what we believe can lead a person to spiritual apathy in their life. If a person doesn't know why they believe, it won't be long that they won't care what they believe. And we must understand we cannot take the gospel to the world if we do not understand the gospel. And the good news is that is exactly why the book of Romans was written. The book of Romans has been called the most important book in all of the Bible. It's widely regarded as the most complete summary of the gospel message. It was given to us, it was written, so that you will know why you believe the gospel. It was written so that you will live out the gospel. It was written so that you will not become apathetic toward the gospel. And so, in introducing the subject of this letter to the Romans, uh, the subject of the gospel is unpacked chapter by chapter and paragraph by paragraph and word by word and blow by blow throughout the entire book. There's a phrase in the sport of boxing called going the distance. I always thought that was a sport that was better to watch than to participate in. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression before, going the distance. If you're able to survive the full rounds of a, bo of a boxing match, you have gone the distance. And back in the day, there was 15 rounds of boxing. In the book of Romans, there's 16 chapters, and if we were to be honest, very few people survive all 16 rounds of the book of Romans. Let's admit it. It's thick, and it's rough, and it's tough. It's like a boxing match, and there's blow after blow as you go through this, and there's near knockdowns. There's moments of great glory. There's moments of stunning defeats, but round after round, our pride is beaten, 
Our self-sufficiency is beaten. Our self-righteousness is beaten. And each chapter the bell rings and the battle continues. There are times the words float like a butterfly, but most of the time they sting like a bee, to borrow a boxing phrase. But at the end, there's a great victory. And Jesus Christ is raised up as the great and grand champion at the end. And this is a letter that is full of rich doctrine, deep doctrine. And we need to understand that doctrine matters. Doctrine is not a luxury. It is a necessity. There's some people that might say that doctrine does not matter, which is in fact a doctrine to say that, and a poor one at that. But doctrine does matter. Doctrine does divide. Falsehood needs to be divided from truth. And that's what the book of Romans does for us. And this morning we have barely time to deal with a few verses, much less 16 chapters. And we're just going to be beginning in round one of the book of Romans this morning. But if I could run through the teachings of this book in two minutes or less, and you could time me if you like, I'll probably be a little bit over. But uh, we could say this, that Paul, first of all, starts with the bad news. Because he says that we're all guilty before God because of our sin. We're lost in our sin. Every race, every person. God has a moral law and we've broken that. We're guilty before God. In chapter 1, God has revealed himself, it says, in nature to all human beings so that no person can say on, on Judgment Day, God, I didn't know that you existed. And not only has he revealed himself to each person clearly, but each person has clearly rejected God revealing himself to them. So that universally we take God's truth, we twist it to fit our own desires, and we turn God's truth into some form of idolatry in our lives. Each person not only has universally rejected the God of nature, but Paul teaches us that there's a law that's written in our hearts, our conscience, so we know right from wrong, and that also condemns us. Because we don't live up to that either, because we suppress the truth. And there's also then the written work of the written word of God that God gave his people, the Jews, the oracles of God, the scriptures, black and white on paper, parchment, carved in stone. And yet that written law also condemns us as guilty before God. We're told that all have fallen short of the glory of God. God demands perfect obedience to his law, and we have failed in obeying that law. We do not have righteousness. We are not right before God. That's the bad news. And then Paul gets to the good news. The good news is that there is a righteousness from God that has been revealed apart from the law, a righteousness that is available to all who believe. And Paul begins to develop this. This righteousness this is based on Christ's perfect life that he lived, his death, his resurrection. Using Abraham as an example, God give him, gifted him righteousness through faith apart from the law, it talks about. Then Paul talks about how being justified by God through faith, a person starts their journey on holy living. And the great message is that God does not wait for us to be perfect before we're accepted before him. 
but he justifies us before him, and then we are made acceptable to the Father by virtue of our relationship to the Son. And we have been declared righteous by God. I am a changed person, and the direction of my life is now moving toward being more like Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, he talks about this battle that we face with our sinful nature, and yet the Spirit is still in, at work in us. In chapter 8, we see the care of God in our lives so that he is with us during these battles, working all things out for our good. And we see God is sovereign over salvation, Paul's concern for his fellow Jews and their salvation in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then, as Paul thinks about this great salvation, he can't help himself at the end of chapter 11 because he shouts out at the end of this chapter, Oh, the depths of the riches of the mercies of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. You see, a deep theology leads to a high doxology. And so Paul goes on in chapter 12 along with the rest of the book and he shows us the practical applications that come from living out the gospel in our lives so that we are no longer conformed to this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. All because of the good news, the gospel taught, understood, lived out in our lives. And as one author says, the book of Romans is simple enough for a child to understand its basic message, but deep enough to keep the greatest minds of the Christian church busily engaged for a lifetime. And here in this book, we see the heart and the mind of the Apostle Paul, a, a theologian, a pastor, a missionary, an evangelist, and all these roles find themselves intertwined into the themes of this book. And behind all these roles of the Apostle Paul, there's one message that emerges behind them all, and that is that the gospel is glorious. The gospel is glorious, and sometimes maybe we think of the gospel as maybe a three-minute mini-sermon that we, we preach to those that need to believe, or we think of it as a gospel track that we hand someone. But I've got to tell you, the gospel is so much more than that. The gospel is our life. The gospel is our food as a Christian because the gospel is glorious, and each Christian needs to understand the gospel forwards and backwards, upwards and downwards, to know why you believe what you believe. Not just so we can share the gospel, but we need the gospel to survive in our Christian life. We need the gospel to thrive in our Christian life. And uh, we need it not just day two of salvation, or three or four. We need it year 10 you're 20, you're 50, you're 60. We need the gospel every day. Our family uh, gets up every morning and we're greeted by our family dog and he's wagging his tail, all excited to see us. And we learn very quickly that our, our yellow lab lives for one thing, to fetch tennis balls. You throw it, he fetches it. You throw it again, he fetches it again. He will fetch it as long as you are willing to throw it. He will fetch it as long as he's willing, he'll fetch it as long as you're willing to throw it because he follows the impulse of a Labrador retriever. 
That reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon where Linus is throwing sticks there for Snoopy to go retrieve. And Snoopy's first impulse is to go after the stick. And he starts and then he stops and he thinks about it. But then he does not go after the, the stick. And he gives his reason in the caption when he says, I want people to say more about me after I am gone than he was a nice guy. He chased sticks. Because after all, right, what's the glory in chasing sticks? But many people spend their lives chasing sticks. Never investing in what is truly glorious in life. And I have to tell you, every moment spent pursuing the gospel is a moment that is worth your time. And so this morning, we want to zero in and continually focus on the gospel from the first part of Romans chapter 1. If we are ever to understand the glory of the gospel, we must understand, number one, first of all, we don't change the gospel. The gospel changes us. We don't change the gospel. The gospel changes us. There is, of course, a human tendency where we want to believe what we want to believe. But then we see this truth pouring out of Romans chapter 1 because it speaks of the gospel of God. Paul was very clear to note that it's not the gospel of you, it's not the gospel of myself, it is the gospel of God. If we look at the structure of that phrase, the gospel of God, the grammar there is intended to describe God as the originator of the gospel. He is the possessor of the gospel. It is his gospel, not our gospel. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't change the gospel because it's not ours to change. It was entrusted to us as believers to deliver, but never to tamper with. When that delivery man delivers a package to your front door, his job is to deliver that package to you in the condition that he received it. And so he's not to open that package and reconfigure the contents of that package. He's to deliver it. And every generation, it seems, will face many forces and many winds of doctrine that will tempt them to tamper with the gospel. To in some way try to improve it as it were. And Paul knew this very well because shortly before he wrote the book of Romans, he had to write the book of Galatians. And there were people there that were trying to tamper with the gospel. And he says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel Verse 7 of chapter 1, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Why is it that people want to change the gospel? And I want to offer this reason from the text here this morning, and it's, it's hinted at in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why do people want to change the gospel? They're ashamed of the gospel. 
Why would even being ashamed of the gospel be an option for Paul? Ever think about that? We could think of several reasons why it might be a possibility. I mean, some might think it crazy that there'd be a resurrection of the dead like Jesus, or some might view it maybe as a Jewish teaching, and Paul wasn't ashamed to be a, a Jew. But maybe the one at the top of the list, no doubt, would be that there is an offense associated with the proclamation of the gospel. What is the offense? That we are all desperately wicked sinners. Now hold it for a second. I mean, I might, I might be a sinner, but, but I'm not that bad. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. All of us. You know, if you want to heal, uh, feel the heat of an interpersonal communication between someone, just insinuate a person is a desperately wicked sinner. In danger of the wrath of God, which is eternal hell. I was telling our, our Thursday morning men's group a few weeks ago about an experience I had. I was at a funeral out of state, and... Uh, and I was trying to kill some time, and I found this hymnal in one of the pews, and I started to go through it, and I found the song, Amazing Grace. Oh, this is great. I started to read the lyrics again. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a... The word got changed. They took the word wretch out and put the word soul. And I'm thinking to myself, why would someone replace the word wretch with the word soul. I mean, this is a song that's been sung for hundreds, a few hundred years. And everyone in, that I know has probably sung it at least once. Why would someone do that? You do that if you are ashamed of the gospel of God. They want it to be their gospel not God's gospel. A few years ago, I had the privilege of standing at the north rim of the Grand Canyon with my family, and I've got to tell you, I've heard that expression, take your breath away, but I never experienced it till I saw the Grand Canyon in person myself. I've, you know, you, you walk around the corner, and it's there, and the canyon just appears in front of you, and it's as if the earth gives way underneath your feet and opens up into this massive vacuum of empty air as you stand there. And the word grand is not enough to describe it. And it just took my breath away. Before visiting, I had read all the facts about the canyon. I had seen pictures of the canyon. People had sent me postcards of the canyon. But my breath was not taken away until I saw the canyon myself. And did you know that it's, it's hard to see your sin in all of its greatness and in all of its vastness? And there's a difference between knowing that you sin and being convicted of your sin. Knowing that you sin is kind of like seeing your sin on a postcard. Yeah, okay. 
Being convicted of your sin is when you see it in person. And the difference between the two is as vast as the Grand Canyon. Because we can sit there and say, well, you know, to sin is human and everyone does it and blah. But to be convicted of your sin, that's of that's God. Doing his work in our lives. And, you know, when, when the gospel is unpacked, it shows someone the vastness of their sin. And it does, if it doesn't take your breath away, your eyes are probably closed. Your spiritual eyes. As Paul goes on later in chapter 1, just listen to what he says about the sinful condition of mankind. He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They, though they knew God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval of those who practice them. And if we're, we're thinking maybe uh, I'm not quite as bad as those people at the end of chapter 1, Paul goes on in chapter 2, says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We've all constructed idols. They're just different shapes. They're just different sizes. In one way or another, we've all held our fist up to God in rebellion against him. And now, this is the part of the gospel that we, we need to understand this morning because there's this part of the gospel that is like, like taking a, a harsh medicine. And if we're not careful... We can change the gospel a little bit just thinking that we, we need to sweeten it up. If we could just take away a little bit of that bitter, bitter taste. Because after, after all, there's a song that says, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, right? So we can sweeten it and soften it. But these, in these attempts, there's a great danger to switch it into something that it's not. And it becomes no longer the salvation that saves. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because of this one truth. Think of this. If I allow the gospel to sting me with the reality of my sin, I will also know how much I need the salve of God's mercy in my life. And it's the only salve that will bring God's forgiveness to my sin and my soul I don't know if you've ever seen one of those little pieces of yarn sticking out of a sweater. You guys know what I'm, where I'm going with this, right? It is so tempting to go over, grab that little piece of yarn and give it a tug, and then you realize suddenly the whole fabric falls apart. It unravels. The gospel is like that. You take just one little part of it and you tug on it to get rid of it, and suddenly the whole message of the gospel unravels. And throughout the book of Romans, there's repentance, resurrection, identity of Christ, justice, God's wrath, God's love, sinfulness of mankind, 
faith alone, the kindness of God, the holiness of God, the cross, God is just and is the justifier, the law, the righteousness of God, Jesus as my substitute, and the list goes on and on. And just like a little piece of yarn, you tug one of those out, and soon the entire message unravels. So we don't change the gospel, the gospel changes us. But also we're not the power of the gospel. The gospel is empowered by God Verse 16, Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. Do you see what, he's, what he says here? Um, just like the gospel is God's, the power of the message is what also comes from God as well. And uh, we don't want to change any aspect of the gospel because it's God's and we don't want to claim any power related to the gospel because the power is also God's. And no one understood this better than the Apostle Paul. He was transformed by the gospel of God. Saul to Paul. Acts 9. From the mouth of Jesus to the ears of Paul. It was all God's power in his life that transformed him. And you might go and plant a garden. Maybe you did that. I did that this spring. And, and you plant the seed and you water it. But you never make it grow. When I planted some things in my flower bed this spring, you know, some seeds came up and some seeds didn't come up. And I planted all of them. I watered all of them. And I'm not to be blamed for those that didn't come up and I'm not to be given the credit for those that did. I don't have that kind of power. And that's why Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians when he talks about the gospel, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God gave the increase. How do people think they're the power of the gospel? Well, when we take the focus for the power of the gospel off of God, by default and by mistake, it's placed on you and I as people. And we think that we have to manipulate outcomes for the gospel we think, oh no, it's no longer up to God, it's up to me, I don't, I don't think I can do this. Or we step in and say, step back, here's an expert, I'm going to come and I'm going to figure this out, I've got it under control. And we don't depend on God for the power of the gospel. And it's not personality, but it's the power of the Spirit at work through the message of God's Word. That's the power of the gospel. We might say, you know, I've got a friend and they're in a tough spot, they're asking some serious questions, Someone else can do this better than me. I think I'm going to call my pastor. I've got news for you. The pastor has the same message that you have. It's not the messenger. It's the message. That's in the gospel itself. Um, our goal to share the gospel is accuracy and urgency and compassion. When we're depending on ourselves, we become more concerned about others, how others will perceive us than we are about being accurate about the truth of the gospel. When we're depending on ourselves, we're more concerned what others will think of us than we are about the eternal state of that person's soul. So forever to understand the, the glory of the gospel, we must understand number three, 
that we're not the righteousness of the gospel. The gospel gifts righteousness to us by faith. Verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There is the gospel of God, verse 1. There's the power of God, verse 16. And now there's the righteousness of God, verse 17. And I mentioned Martin Luther at the very beginning. It was this passage, verse 17, Romans 1:17, that troubled him before he understood the gospel. In fact, he said he hated this verse. I recently heard Josh Boosie talking about Martin Luther as he reacted to this passage. And he related that leading up to his conversion, Luther would be in his uh, monastery trying to work his way to God. He was very committed monk in the Catholic Church, and so he was confused and He would later say this, if anyone could make it to heaven through monkery, it would have been me. His works. He would freeze his body on stone cold floors. He'd starve himself till he fainted. He was trying to please God and he didn't know how. And he would write in his own biography how he'd flog himself in self-chastisement because he was trying to live up to this standard of God's righteousness. And he was so troubled by this word righteousness in this verse, he would even say he hated this righteousness because he saw that he couldn't live up to it. He couldn't do it. He couldn't perform it. He'd even say in a blasphemous way that he even hated God who would demand such righteousness. And so he'd go to his confession, and unlike the other monks, he would spend two, three, four, five hours trying to think of every sinful thought that he had, had thought of so he could confess it, and he did this all according to his religion. He visited Rome once and saw this set of stairs that, that were supposedly by Pilate's judgment, and they had relocated from Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, he started to, walk, to go up these stairs on his knees, praying at each one. As he got to the top, he said, Who knows if this is true? And he was thrown into despair. And it wasn't until God enlightened his understanding that there's a righteousness that is available through faith. Apart from the works of the law, Romans 1.17, God's righteousness here was not a standard that he had to try to live up to, but it was something that God would give him through faith, through simple faith. It was that moment that he said, I understood, and the gates of paradise opened up before me. We think, well, why tell that story? It's over 500 years old. But you see, um, when you don't understand the righteousness of the gospel, you have to try to work for your own righteousness. And he was trying to be right before God in all the wrong ways, And his story is the story of the multitudes today who do not understand the righteousness of the gospel. It's not earned. It's not based on merit or any any kind of works. And we see a person might be agonizing over their sins in, in a monastery, beating themselves. But every person is trying to believe in their heart that they're right before God. And so they justify sin and they excuse sin and they rationalize it. Sometimes they try to punish themselves over it. But 
In the gospel, there is a righteousness that God reveals. And it is a gift. It's a gift. Theologians call it imputed righteousness, passive righteousness. Jesus paid for your sins when he died on the cross. You don't have to pay for them. God's righteousness is credited to you when you believe in Christ and you surrender your life to him. It's a gift. And as a Christian, we, we need to know why we believe what we believe. The same verse 17 says that you're saved from faith for faith. The faith that saves you is the faith that sustains you. And as we, we close this morning, there's a, a bronze plaque in a park church that bears this inscription. Joseph S. Alzuski, seaman, second class, U.S. Coast Guard, lot February 3rd, 1943, North Atlantic. And there's a story about this man in the book by Alan Emery called Turtle on a Fence Post. And as the story goes, it was the day after Pearl Harbor, and uh, Emery, along with thousands of other young men, enlisted, and his choice was the Coast Guard, and he was stationed in his hometown of Boston, and soon after, he was given guard duty on Friday night, and so to prepare for guard duty, he decided to get some sleep in his bunk, and uh, he was trying to sleep when a new friend of his came in, a man by the name of Joseph Aluski. As he came by, he noticed that he was immaculate, dressed in blues. His sailor hat was squared perfectly on his head. That white, the, the white in the, in the piping of his sleeve was absolutely snow white. His shoes were spit-shined, and so he said, what's the great event? He said, how do I look? He said, you look beautiful, but where are you going? And then in a very excited manner, Aluski went on to explain that he'd met the girl, this girl the night before at the USO, a very wealthy young lady who had invited him to spend the weekend with her at her apartment in Beacon Hill. And she had plenty of alcohol and records. And he started to talk about how he was going to have the greatest time of his life. And he started to walk out the door. And Emery said... Well, I'll be praying for you. And the fellow walked out the door and then stuck his head back in the door and said, What did you say? I'll be praying for you. Then Aluski responded, How in the world can you be praying for me when I'm going out to have the best weekend in my life that I've ever had? And the response was, Because, Joe... Monday morning, when you come back on board, you won't be the same person that you are now. Because sin leaves its mark. And so his friend swore and walked out into the night. And Emery prayed and prepared to go out on guard duty. That night, as he began guard duty, he was startled when a figure walked into the floodlights of the guardhouse, and it was his friend. And the first words his friend greeted him with were, how can you have a good time when you know someone's praying for you? He said, I stood up my date, my whole evening, my whole weekend is ruined. 
Now, can you tell me how I can find God? And so it was on that night that Joseph S. Aluski heard for the very first time the good news of the gospel. And he surrendered his life to Christ, and his friend Emery said the change was absolutely immediate. He joined the church. He started spending his extra time inviting other servicemen, uh, other servicemen to the worship services. He prayed with his buddies, and he grew from the teaching that was there. And then on February 1st, 1943, he volunteered for sea duty on a minesweeper that was going up to Iceland. Three days out of New York, a torpedo found its mark. See, when you, when you know the gospel, you can share the gospel. You can live the gospel. And it's the power of God unto salvation. Let's pray. If you're here uh, today and, and you're not a believer, you've never entrusted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and maybe he's convicting you of your sin, come talk to us. We'd like to show you from Scripture how you can be saved, and we'd like to pray with you. And for those Christians that are here, and you, you know this gospel that, that saved you is the gospel that sustains you, and we're to carry the attitude of the gospel with us through life. You know, Jesus said those words, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled Father, we again thank you for this good news, the gospel. Help us to never be ashamed. Help us to share your gospel. Help us to live your gospel, to grow, to understand it in more deeper and meaningful ways. And Father, we'll be sure to give you all the glory for the work that you do. We pray these things. In your son's name, amen. Well, we want to thank you so much for, for joining us uh, this, this morning and for looking into God's word uh, together. And it's good to be together. Whoever is able to gather, it is good to be together. Some, take some time, get to meet the Keiths. And uh, as you leave today, remember, keep praying for each other. And... Uh, Keep praying for our country and uh, be the light in the world around us. So thanks again for coming. Uh, God bless you and just have a good rest of your day.